What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. We've got a special guest tonight, Nell Stem from Fairview Partners. Usually it's just me talking out of my ass, making up things about what's going to go on in the stock market, what the Fed's doing. But tonight we got a real expert, 10 zillion trillion dollars assets under management, 100% returns year over year. This is the financial wizard, the man on Wall Street with the biggest dick, the army of Ferraris. Let's hear it for Nels. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hey, Robbie, how's it going? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm going to have to have my attorney check into those claims. I'm not sure, but, you know, we'll go with it. No, you give your money to Nels, and you are it is guaranteed performance. Future performance <laughs> is indicative of future results. You're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to cover a lot of things that's the exact opposite, but uh, we'll, we'll go with it for now. All right, perfect. Well, to get things started, why don't you actually tell us a little bit about your background? Um, I know that you uh, invest in distressed debt and that you're also very into um, not just owning a little bit of physical gold as a hedge, but really into the gold stocks. But why don't I mean the uh, gold mining stocks? But before we get into the particulars on how people can preserve their wealth, why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, your background? Because um, I know you're also a little bit of a liber- not a libertarian, but uh, I know you got, uh, you're a fan of the Austrian economics. Yeah, well, I, uh, you got me there. I'm a libertarian, uh, guilty as charged, and uh, definitely a fan of Austrian economics. And then, you know, watching that side of things for 20 years or so, um, both the politics and the economics and and finance, which is a little bit separate. And part of what I might say is that you better keep them separate in your mind because that's really important. But we, uh, I run a firm. I'm the founding principal of Fairview Partners. We've been an investment manager for 10 years. And we buy distressed debt on commercial real estate largely. We also originate some financings of commercial real estate. So we're in that market, and we're we're sort of high yield investors in that way. Um, kind of a interesting place where where debt debt investing and equity investing uh, come together. And um, yeah, we've been so- we have been successful over the years. We've had about you know mid teens to twenty percent returns. Now, if you're in the debt game specifically for commercial real estate, um, are you guys sidelining a lot of cash and expecting things to go to shit that you can kind of vulture up this market? Because I would think that commercial real estate, as people are considering shutting down their offices, um, that that's one of like the, I, I guess, interesting markets for the upcoming year. Correct, correct. And so that's why, you know, I, I just did a loan sale because I have a portfolio. I mean, that's you know, one of the challenges is even if I'm bearish, which for your more, you know, non-financial oriented listeners means, you know, I think things might not go that well. Stock market might go down, might have problems. So, you know, I'm, I've been kind of bearish for years now, uh, but nonetheless, I need to run a portfolio going into what could be a bad situation like today. And so that's why I focus on debt, because let's say there's a $10 million property, my investment into that property is like six million or seven million, right? So I'm the debt on the property, not the equity on the property. So if the property drops to seven million dollars and I'm in for six, I still maintain the, the value of my principal. And so that's what we've been doing the last few years. And then right now we are we are kind of in a in a holding mode on that. And that's why I've been I've been thinking about some other things that we can talk about with gold equities. But, you know, we have a long ways to go to to let that pricing of real estate change because I think it needs to change 
drastically, and we have today what's called like a wide bid-ask spread, you know, between sellers. Nobody wants to sell today, and the buyers want to lower a price. So there's really just not a lot of transactions. Um, but we did just sell a bunch of loans uh, on Friday, so we are actually, like you said, getting more liquid and then hoping for a future investment event uh, with better prices. Right. Now, I kind of want to just discuss what's gone on in the financial markets kind of for the last 10 years and a little bit just the way money works. So Uh I don't have nearly the experience or background that you do. But interestingly enough, I was, um, you know, I interned at a couple of hedge funds when I was in college and I was there for the really interesting years. I was in a hedge fund the year that Bear Stearns went under and like, you know, people, it was just like little chatter of, oh, if these guys are, it wasn't even Bear Stearns. When I was in the hedge fund, it was that one fund that Bear Stearns had that was investing in the, and like, and it was just like a little, you know, fifth page of the Wall Street Journal that some experts went under and, hey, is this going to turn into a bigger event? And then it turned into an absolutely massive event. Then you end up Uh with the quantitative easing. You end up with a, well, before the QEs came around, you really saw the stock market went down big time and gold went up way, way up. And interestingly enough, I was working off, working in a new fund that was like a gold trading desk during that summer where gold was basically where it is now. Um, But I think what's just from a bird's eye view, what makes the stock market and the financial market so interesting to me is that as opposed to when there might have been real price discovery, it's all about, hey, what's the Fed going to do? Nobody thinks the stock market should be where it's priced right right now. The returns aren't there. No one's making money. It's just a function of, hey, where's the Fed's going to put its money uh, and so I just kind of would love to get the, the, the picture from you guys of like from the start of kind of, you know, when the QE started all the way to now where they're, where they're you know, I, what are they doing with the repo loans and the way that that all yeah. multiplies? I, I mean, I've rambled enough, so I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think y- you're getting at it. And the, one of the things that you have to understand, especially for the common person, is that it, it is unbelievably complex, right? You know, Rothbard wrote a book called The Mystery of Banking, and I kind of recognize, you know, they want to make it a mystery, but also it is, you know, pretty darn complex, and they've only made it way more complex than he, than when he did that. And so my view is a little bit different than some of the the Austrian and the libertarian stuff. I mean, I, I don't have anything good to say about the Fed, that's for sure, right? You know, the Fed and war are like our two biggest enemies, right? Uh, But that said, I think it's sometimes a little bit overstated the powers that they have and the things that they do. And I know that what they are good at doing is promoting themselves really well. So if you look at the March March bottom in in stocks, um, you know, the stock market had declined. This is just, just as an example. The stock market had declined a huge amount, an amount that I think anybody who has any sense in the financial markets would say, okay, it's going to find a bottom right around here, right? And that's kind of the moment at which they come out with, oh, a big bazooka, you know, of, of all this policy, 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 right? And so then it's sort of seen as that policy is what drove it when a lot of what driving it is, frankly, a bounce that was needed, that we had a big bubble in the stock market, um, you have a huge crash, and now you have a big old bounce out of it. That's kind of what we would expect about, you know, people that have looked back at market history. 
Um, and so I think that the Fed does a lot of very real things that, that do cause bubbles and do, you know, make distortions. But the market is pretty strong still. And I think that people should be very wary about we seem to be granted that the more and more the market goes up, the more and more we grant them the power of this sort of wizardry to be able to just raise the market up, right? And uh, I, I don't know that they have that much power. Now, so if you go back to what they did, you say post Bear Stearns and then, and then running into Lehman Brothers, you know, they created all of these reserves, right? There were supposed to be all these reserves, and that was supposed to create all this inflation. But Frankly, these reserves, they don't really do a lot. They're sort of sterile, you know, unless the banks go out and the banks sort of have to take credit risk to go out and give someone a loan, right? They have to come to you and say, oh, wow, Robbie, you need to expand your podcast here. Here's some money and it's going to make it more profitable. And unless you really have a prospect of making it more profitable, it's really hard for them to go and expand that, right? And that's separate from... I don't know what happens in Zimbabwe or something like that, where Zimbabwe is a cash system. And here we have a debt-based system. And that's what, that's what I think people get a little bit lost. And that gets back to kind of what I do, where I buy debt at a discount from the banks. So I see a process of the debt kind of being destroyed. And, and, and when that debt is destroyed, it can tend to destroy money. So, the Fed is fighting a huge deflationary credit contraction, very, very large of a lot of private debt. And they, you know, it sounds like a lot of money, but there's a lot of debt. So um, I have a couple questions yep. on, on this outlook and I'll, I'll take them one at a time. But the first is if you're taking the perspective that the banks have all this money and they don't want to loan it out, doesn't that mean that the banks yep. themselves are kind of short the economy in general? Like, they're not looking at it as, hey, there's profit potential in terms of giving this money to people? Well, I think it's that they, they have, I mean, they have underwriting standards and credit standards, and they have a hard, you know, they can have a hard time going out. And because at the end of the day, that you know, no one is guaranteeing, the Fed is not necessarily guaranteeing the profitability of the banks, right? What they do provide is they can provide financing so that they can own own, it's the difference between liquidity and solvency. And some people have described this dichotomy as, you know, the Fed can solve a liquidity problem. And so a lot of people will say that last, the last bust, the great financial crisis in 2008, was a liquidity problem, right? So there are somewhat good assets, but it's just the wrong people holding them and they're too over-levered and all those things. Then if you have a solvency crisis, right, it's hard for the Fed to come in and really reinflate a solvency crisis, right? J.C. Penney just went bankrupt a little while ago. But don't Which, they... Uh, Chucky? I, I think, if, mm-hmm. I, if I'm understanding you correctly, basically... There's places like Chuck E. Cheese's or places like J.C. Penney or, or Sears, yep. and that's because these companies suck. 
They're not really all that profitable. The Fed can give them all the money in the world. At the end of the day, people are playing their video games online or they're purchasing shit from Amazon. So there's no reason for the Fed to prop up Sears or there's no reason for it to prop up AMC Lowe's because if people would prefer to watch their television on Netflix, it doesn't matter if you give money to these institutions. They're not really needed. However, when you de- when you describe, in my opinion, basically liquidity and solvency, when they give all of these, when they give all this money over to financial institutions, such as like you know J.P. Morgan Chase, or now it's all going to BlackRock um, to seemingly bail out some of these giant bond packages that you know, like the junk bonds that they were putting themselves and corporate investors into then that liquidity is a solvency thing. They're just picking winners and that they're picking the banks that, hey, we'll let you keep this money on your balance sheet so that you can remain solvent. And the way that they do that is through liquidity. But there are some industries that they're, you know, giving the money to, even though they should be under to be like remain solvent. I don't know if that's entirely mm-hmm. accurate, but. Yeah, no, 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 that makes sense. And that's kind of the thing that is, you know, it does happen on the margin, right? So if, if I was a high yield borrower, right? Like Carnival Cruise Line is a high yield borrower right now, right? Because they have some assets, but they barely are operating and they just borrowed money at, I think, 10 or 12%, right? And, you know, without, uh, it's generally viewed that, you know, without the stimulus programs or the Fed, that they wouldn't have got access to that money, right? So, or, or maybe they would have got access to it at 18%, right? So that uh, spread between 12% and 18%, you know, you're certainly making that up, right? But you can't go, you know, you can't go and loan money into a bankrupt institution, right? You can't. So, so yes, the, the the banks that were holding those bonds, if they get financing for those bonds that had sold way off, then yes, they're getting, you know, they're getting this this greater liquidity and things like that. But then, again, what about the bonds themselves? You have to be able to come up with bonds that are somewhat financially decent. Now, what the market is doing is, is making all those bonds worse. They're loaning people more money. Uh, they're, they're lowering the requirements on it. And so the Fed does do some of these things around the margins. Um, but they, they, they have, they're going to end up into a difficult situation with having just not the collateral that they need. Now, everybody can always imagine, well, they can take it to this point. They can go, you know, they can start to monetize the lint in your pockets or whatever it is. But, you know, they oftentimes don't move that quickly. And I, I think, I don't, they, they just, there's a le- there's a huge legend around the Fed that, you know, oh, they're going to stop this, they're going to inflate everything. And, I mean, did they, infl- did they stop Mar- what happened in March? No. They didn't, right? They they talk about it. They said they they said they were aware of it or they knew about it. Well, why did they let it happen then? And then you know the same thing in two thousand eight. Well, why did why did we have a massive stock crash and then you know a multi year deleveraging process that frankly didn't go far enough? I mean, what they probably did is that perhaps they chopped a couple end a couple years off the end of a deleveraging process or or, you know, reignited it a little bit sooner or something like that. All right. Is it at all possible? Because I think if I'm understanding you correctly, you're basically saying, hey, if the Fed has all this power, why doesn't it prevent these disasters? Why does it have to be reactionary to the disasters? It would seem that the Mm -hmm. Fed is not that knowledgeable or powerful. Um, But could it perhaps be that, like, you know, like these disasters come around and then the Fed bails them out. And that's kind of the cheat in the game is that the banks are you know, aligned with the Fed. And so the Fed comes around and bails them out. It kind of can't necessarily have the 
you, like it, they had to sell the financial bailouts that you know Wall Street was going to go under unless AIG mm-hmm. got bailed out and that um, Goldman Sachs was able to make, but you know it wasn't going to have to go under and lose all of its money. I don't quite understand the whole financial racket, but usually the way that they sell these things is, hey, if we don't bail these people out, we're all super screwed. Um, so it seems to me like sometimes you actually need this stuff to go to shit in order for them to sell us on, Hey, we've got to hand all this money over. It's a little bit harder to hand it all over unless you're kind of in a disaster climate. Yeah. And that's what, you know, what people are are talking about right now, where you have so much inflation talk going on is because they're saying, well, the Fed reacted so quickly and last time it took them so long. Right. And so, hey, and, and we also have the unity between monetary policy and fiscal policy, right? Fiscal policy being the criminals in D.C. spending our money. And that, you know, that sort of becomes more of a direct monetization and things like that. And so part of but, but people always want those stories. That, that, that's part of what a market is, right? So now that we're in this joyous, you know, inflating stock market again, um, I've had a saying for the last couple of years, which is that both the bulls and the bears want inflation, right? And, you know, the bulls are, are the guys on CNBC and your stock broker at Merrill Lynch, and the bears are kind of you and I, right, guys that are a little more suspicious about things and kind of know there's some phoniness going on and things like that. But it's funny that they kind of end up both at the same place, which is that, oh, there's going to be inflation. It's just the one party that CNBC wants the stock market inflation, and a lot of the people on the Austro-Libertarian side kind of have this, well, there's going to be inflation in copper or something like that. And I don't really know why copper is going to go up um, in this environment. You know, if we don't have another China to build, which is a huge credit bubble and all of these things. And I think that that's the real, you know, the real Austrian theory is one of expansion of credit reduces, the, you know, reducing the rate of interest. Uh, funding long-lived capital goods, right? Like a copper mine. All of a sudden, you know, the, the, the market only wanted 10 copper mines, but they messed with the interest rate sufficient that you built 20 copper mines. Then your oversupply of copper. They they don't like the term oversupply, but they say malinvestment. For, for an investor, which is that's my main thing that I'm focusing on, it's basically oversupply. And so I think you have, you know, you're going to have oversupply in capital goods uh, industries, real estate, um, you know, different commodities, things like that. And again, the, you know, what is the Fed going to do? Just start buying copper? Um, I guess some people think they are, but I think that there's very, I think they're going to have very difficult problems, you know, sort of through doing that. All right. So now what, what I want to kind of take a look at is just the financial picture of what's even going on with money, because Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you would look at it and go, holy shit, they just printed a fuck ton of money. There's going to have to mm-hmm. be inflation. But then on the other side of it, and you sent me a really interesting chart that kind of shows um, how big the, not not just the market for money is, but just how big the, let's just say, um, uh, you know, your, your, your balance sheet money, derivative products, back and forth between banks of massive bonds of what people owe each other dwarfs what you know the cash market by I, I don't even know how much it dwarfs it but the point is there's this like just massive amount of debt that exists in the world and there's so much money priced in dollars that people owe to each other 
the argument is made that we're not going to see inflation because there's so much demand for dollars for people to pay off this massive pile of debt. And that massive pile of debt is almost fictionally large. It's larger than any amount of money that could possibly exist in the world. So the demand for dollars to keep paying away at that debt pile, which is endless, like there will, in other words, there's going to be upward dollar demand and we can continue printing. You won't see inflation because people are going to continue to want dollars. That's the, the basically mm-hmm. the general idea. Do I have that somewhat right? Yeah, yeah, that's in the ballpark. Um, what I what I had sent you of that, what you referenced as a chart, is something called Exeter's Pyramid. It was a slightly different version of it, but your uh, listeners could go look that up, and you would learn a lot. And that's E X E T E R Pyramid. And so take like the USDA. You think about if you if you're thinking about the you know the USDA food guideline pyramid that they made to you know that's only good for fattening cows, but no, that, that thing, the fr- dude, the first model of that, it was bread on the bottom. They had that thing right. Make your sandwiches. <laughs> I get your sandwiches are up there, right? Yeah, it's good. So take that thing, flip it on its head, right? So you have this pyramid that's cut in with these lines going across it. And the bottom of that pyramid is going to be gold, right? And then just above that is paper currency. And that, I mean the actual $100 bill that's in your pocket. And then you start looking at bank deposits. And then you start looking at other financial instruments and, you know, eventually you're up at sort of the most ethereal types of money of, of um, you know, derivatives and different things like that. And so we have a process since we've moved so far away from gold for many reasons that, you know, the government is involved in to, to ban the, you know, to, to limit the use of gold as money, um, that you have all this sort of innovation in what money is. Um, and there's, there's a lot of libertarians that say, well, they, they stopped counting money because they, uh, they don't want to and they don't want to show what it is. And there could be some truth to that. There's some other people that say they've lost the ability to even count money all the way back in the 60s. Um, and so what we have is a debt-based monetary system, right? When you go, what you think of as money is just debt, right? So you might have $100 in your pocket. Maybe that's cash. Okay, you have $10,000 in the bank. All right, it's got FDIC backing, but that's the real reason why, you you know, just because it has a government stamp on it. So it's essentially credit anyway. It's just the credit of the federal government. Right? So you have $10,000 and then a bank deposit. Perhaps that's cash. But show me a billion dollars of cash. You know, where is a billion dollars of cash? That does not exist. It does not exist anywhere. There is only a billion dollars of debt. And there's higher and lower grades of debt, right? So when things are really good, people start to kind of use money, uh, you know, use Fannie Mae bonds or different different securities as as kind of making money. Uh, when things go really really bad, then you know they want treasury bills, right? So they want a they want a six month T bill. Uh, the sovereign debt of the senior currency, which is the U.S. government. And again, I can't, I can't emphasize enough. I am not advocating for the Fed or for more U.S. government debt. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm straight down the line with you and Dave and, and everybody else. But the reality of the situation is, is that people have tremendous liabilities in dollars. They have private liabilities, right? Like the mortgages that I buy, they have a skyscraper and they take out a mortgage on that thing, and they need to service that debt. 
And so when you have that panic, that's why we saw, that's why you can see treasury bills trade at a, at a negative yield. Okay. It doesn't have anything to, you know, I, I, there's a kind of conspiracy oh. theories around it. What it is, is because it's cash. You Those are blew, cash. More, dude, you just blew my mind. No, no, no. Yeah. I, now I get it. It's because physical cash in that amount does not exist. And it does so, not exist. right. And exist. so if, and so if everything's being priced, basically you just have some sort of a piece of debt, but my piece of debt, yeah. which might be the mortgage on my house is actually worth like, mm-hmm. when I say not, I don't mean worth less, it's worth less yeah. than the treasury, which is worth less than the cash. Since I can't possibly Correct. get the cash, I got to pay a premium for the treasury. But the point is mm-hmm. none of this money actually exists. It's just a function of my A, like my cash is my A grade debt. My T bill mm-hmm. is my B grade debt. My home mortgage is C grade debt, and then the, the mm-hmm. repackaging of that is the D grade. So I'm going to have to pay yep. a premium for the B, which, if anything, yep. that's kind of an argument for holding your physical dollar bills are actually potentially yeah, worth more than your metal, dollar bill. We'll get to. Yeah, and you can see this in like the eurozone, and what you know, Germany, the German debt is traded negative for a very long time, right? Uh, and that's because you have li- your liabilities. It's as if all of America, only Texas was the sovereign debt. We didn't have the U.S., you know, if we didn't have the U.S. and U.S. debt and each state issued debt, you know, Texas would become the sovereign debt and everything else would be a junk bond, right? Chicago would be a junk bond. It's the same way in Europe where Germany is the real debt. And if you think of, hey, I'm a big, you know, pension fund or insurance company, I need to have access to liquidity. You're talking about big numbers, right? And so I need to own the true deal, which is the German bond bond. And that, you know, that negative yield is just essentially like a banking fee, basically at this point, right? You know, you, you pay your little, your little hit there and you mentioned your mortgage. I mean, there's another way on the opposite side of things. Like I could write a mortgage on your house. I've written mortgages all over the place. That is not a terribly liquid item because you know, I'm going to write it in kind of a non-standard way and, you know, I can sell it. I've sold many loans, but let's say instead you go to a, you know, a legitimate shop that issues tons of those mortgages and they issue that mortgage with all sorts of, you know, uh, requirements and stuff that you need, all the paperwork, all that. And then it gets grouped into a bond and then it gets stamped by the U.S. government to say, yes, certified that he you know, was qualified to get this mortgage, and we also back this up with, you know, various credit enhancements. Now you've essentially created some, you know, a money-like instrument, right, just by this processing of it. And so you've had this processing where we're creating and we're upgrading all of these debts into money. And my view is instead goes back to that Exeter's pyramid that it's a very, very tippy toppy thing right now and it's gonna fall over. And at the base of it are things like gold and treasury bills and actual physical currency. All right. So a couple questions on this system where because I I mean it it's a little bit hard to wrap your head around. So there's more money being represented by debt than possibly exist or could be serviced in the world. Like, so really what that means is that some assets kind of have to be marked to zero so that you can kind of readjust back to, I mean, I want to use the word equilibrium here, but I don't know that that like between the the money that exists and the actual, like, in other words, you've got, let's just say commercial real estate, which you're in. 
since money was yeah. made available for commercial real estate, you've got pro- properties that are probably priced at a hundred million dollars that might be worth more like a million if you took all the liquidity out of that market. The only reason it's at that mm-hmm. price is because you've made all this like financing available. And so at one point you kind of have to, you know, pull the rug out to go this amount of money. Does, you know what I mean? At some point you have to, I guess, turn off the spigot to all the liquidity being available for the assets to reprice themselves at actual levels in which we have the money to, you know, for, for those to be reasonable prices. I'm kind of even losing Correct. my word. Like, I don't know. Is that kind of the situation? Yep. Absolutely. You know, you're looking at a process of, of asset prices deflating and, and you have to look at that hundred million dollar skyscraper in New York, right? Um, it has, it's that hundred million, but there's another asset there, which is a seventy million dollar mortgage that an insurance company holds, a bank holds, pension, private fund like myself, and those people don't think of that debt as an asset. Okay, but my books are full of debts. Now I think they're better debts than most people, right? Like you, um, you say that it's better. It's better than cash because you bought it at a discount. Like I might have a dollar. I got it for a dollar, and it's worth a dollar. You've got debt that's worth a hundred million dollars, and you bought it for seventy million dollars. I bought it for seventy, correct? Right. So if, I, if there was that hundred million dollar uh, property, and I bought, you know, and there's a seventy million dollar mortgage on it, then I buy that at fifty million or sixty million. I'm at least in a better spot. I don't think that property is going to a million. I think it'll be supported by its replacement costs and, you know, being at a discount to its replacement costs and things like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm a better cushion to that. So, so you actually want to be in the debt, but there's a process whereby that debt constricts and pulls back. And there's one thing that I could explain to you also about the dollar. And because everybody gets so, I mean, it's almost like a moral issue about the dollar. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, I did. I, I have a libertarian moral side, and then there's the finance stuff. And in my view, you know, we've seen the dollar get stronger in all these periods of distress, right? And and there's there's multiple reasons for it. But to put, you know, the most simplistic view, let's say, you know, you're a big time investor or corporate or whatever it is, you buy an office building in Mexico City. Now, you might use, you probably will use a U.S. dollar mortgage on that asset in Mexico City, right? So now you have something of a mismatch between your rents coming in in pesos and your uh, dollar mortgage, right? Now, some people say, well, actually, a lot of leases are written in dollars as well, okay? Well, but at some point, there's going to be a break, right? At some point, there's going to be a break between you know, transmitting between the dollar and the peso. And so if, for instance, um, the peso gets uh, gets weaker, it makes it more difficult. To, it's kind of a, de- it makes it more difficult to service the debt. It's kind of a downward cycle. And eventually you can default. But what most people do, I know this very well because I've worked with them for years, is most people, when they get into problems, let's say they have problems on that Mexico City office building, they're going to go and try and hold on to the asset for a while. They're going to hold on to it for a year or two or three before they default on the debt. And then they're going to come in and they're going to scramble for dollars. They're going to continue to go after dollars to try and service that debt. Right. So that happens in the U S just with dollar dollar matching, right. Where, where your revenues are in dollars as well as your liabilities are in dollars. But it happens a huge amount on cross border stuff 
where, you know, the, what, what, this has happened for years. If you go back to the different periods in history, you know, when the, when the pound, when London was a, was the financial capital of the world and the, and, and the pound was the senior currency, you write the debt in London, and then you go buy hot assets in Malaysia or whatever it is. And nowadays, you write the you write the debt in New York City, and you go and buy assets in Brazil, right? And then you try and hold on to your your copper mine in Brazil for a while, and you scramble after dollars to service that debt. And that is part of what happens to that process of what of what drives the dollar up. So kind of, I mean, this is just such a backwards way of looking at the bigger system, but since we we became kind of the financial capital of the world and, you know, dollar was the, you know, predominant asset, say that that's because of imperialism or because of, uh, you know, the petrodollar or winning, whatever the hell it is. Anyways, people liked using the dollar because it was the most stable. And then we were got really crafty where we got so much debt in dollars that this is a system chasing its own tail that because people need to constantly service their debt, there's a constant demand for dollars that no matter how much more debt we create in the, like in the current people constantly need to finance that. So there's a constant demand for dollars. So you don't have runaway inflation. That's kind of, Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. we've almost like, I don't know. It's such a, it, it just seems so, there's something really fucked up there that I can't quite wrap my head around why it doesn't make any sense, but we somehow mm-hmm. won by, like, you would think the more, here's what's backwards. You would think the more debt you made, the less people would want it. And we somehow created mm-hmm. a system that because the debt finances its own debt, or you got to pay back the debt with the debt, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We were able to win by making the most of it. it it's There's yep. just something that seems really backwards and not making sense here. Yep, and hey, let me be perfectly honest, it hurts my head too, you know, I mean, it's like, do I understand every single less detail of it or, or where it's going to go? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't. I think, though, that it, it's more likely to end in a, a deflationary sort of collapse, and I think that, look, you have to look at, you know, the Fed, what the Fed says they want is inflation, okay? So I don't necessarily what the Fed want what the Fed says they want. Uh, they said they wanted, they said they didn't want inflation in the 70s and they tried really hard to prevent it and they failed um and so i think that you know in some ways the debt deflation process is the market being stronger than the fed and i believe that the market you know can be stronger than the fed and i think that's how they i think that's the process whereby they finally get reformed um because you know if you look at today you know what would inflation do well it would just it would just bump up the the revenues of uh, of different companies, and, and it would sort of inflate the debt away. And some people have said, "Well, it has to be inflation because it's too painful to think of the alternative." It's like, well, what what history have you been reading? <laughs> you know, the, I mean, the history of the world and the history of markets is, yeah, it gets to be painful, and people get their hands slapped really, really hard. And so, I think it's a process. I, for me, it's a process of reform that could happen. Um, but I would just, it, all of this, I mean, this is all a nice sort of intellectual thing, but I think that people get, you know, they can get really pushed into these ideas when, again, everything, if I look at social media, I look at stories, I mean, some of the biggest bears, they're just inflation, inflation, inflation. You know, if you really believe in inflation, here's what you want to do. Take out as much debt as you possibly can and go buy as many assets as they'll let you do, right? 
But guess what? Right. That's pretty dangerous. Right. But, but the biggest problem, I would just... the, the Okay, to kind of explain how I understand you. If I think inflation is coming, I might as well take on as much debt as possible because I pay back right. that debt in dollars and the dollars are mm. not going to be, you know, it, what mm. it's going to be fucking bupkis because I'm saying that the money is yeah. going to be worth less than it is today. So I might as well take on mm. as much debt as possible buy as much land. And then in a year from now, the land's going to be what's valuable. So I sell that and I pay off my debt with, you know, cheap dollars because they, they, they're not expensive anymore. Uh, I think the problem with that play is it's just so hard to time because even if you expect that at some point the system's going to go under or the inflation's going to come, you're playing, and this is the perspective different than what you're saying because you think the Fed's not that powerful. Sometimes I view it like they're the the biggest, most powerful player in the room. So are you really going to be able to beat them and time this, you know, accurately? Yeah, and that's exactly why, look, that's why the people who... Who, who promote inflation, they don't recommend that, right? And by the way, that there was a, that was called the 1980s, you know, take right. a, you know, and, and the last 20, 30, 40 years was just take out debt, buy a piece of land, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we've had the inflation. Um, but, yeah, I think that for, for most normal people, they don't, they shouldn't be doing that. Um, and if you're going to do these things, it should be with, you know, really speculative capital, which is just, but I think, again, that's where gold comes in is through saving through, saving through these periods. And I think, I mean, it sounds like we wanted to talk about gold and now could be a good time. So let me, that, I got one mm-hmm. more question for you before we Go get ahead. into why yep. gold is worthwhile. And yep. okay. The fuel of this entire system is the dollar demand. And now the current dollar demand might be all because all of this debt is backed, is priced in U.S. dollars, and so people have to finance them in U.S. dollars. What can Uh shift, though, where, you know, China's making the Silk Road, they've got more direct relationships, or someone else creates a digital currency? Like, you could, theoretically, tomorrow, you could have someone who has debt in U.S. dollars and say, you know what, I'm converting this debt over to Bitcoin and I want to be paid in Bitcoin. And you can have that with Matt. Now, I don't think it's going to happen with Bitcoin, um, or it might happen with Bitcoin, but the point is you could have, like, I think already Iran is trying to sell stuff directly for gold, so maybe gold is a more realistic thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe China and Russia get together, they create a gold digital currency, and they start pricing the assets that they're selling to each other in this, and then all of a sudden people realize, hey, I, I feel, for whatever reason... Theoretically, I feel that this currency is actually more stable than the U.S. dollar. And so people start, you know, especially abroad, converting their debt or all of a sudden there isn't as much dollar demand. And then you actually see the inflation. Like, is there any situation that you can see where other currencies start challenging the U.S. dollars? And so like maybe we are at peak dollar demand. And so the current system is not Mm -hmm. sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a good point. And I think we are, in a sense, at peak dollar demand. I think it just needs to maybe hit one more final peak, just so to speak. But, you know, the, the problem is, is that, no, you can't just change. You know, I have a debt. Um, I, I have I have debts. I can't call those people up and I own I own the debt and they owe me the debt. I can't just call them up and say, yeah, pay me back in gold or pay me back in Bitcoin. You know, it's written in U.S. dollars. And so there's a lot of Ten, twenty, thirty-year debt that's written out there. By the way, we're in the middle of what is going to be called someday a duration bubble. Okay, you can go up and look. Your listeners can go look up bond duration, and that's what we're in the midst of is a bond duration bubble. Um, 
And I can't just change that. So it's all baked in the cake. All these contracts are written, you know, and, and, and I, I'm one who administers these crazy contracts that get written later on once they screw up. I know that they're not easy to just, to just change. And so you'll see, you know, CNBC will go out and the dollar goes up and they'll say, oh, well, you know, investors showed their, you know, demand for this by, you know, going after U.S. assets. It's not a voluntary response. Right? This is not a voluntary, this is not a rational choice like I chose, you know, Coke over Pepsi or I chose, you know, to buy stocks of, of this. It's a very automatic, ingrained response that is really, really built into the system. Now, how does that change? I don't think it changes necessarily through, you know, other alternatives. I, I think it changes, frankly, with more of a debt deflation once again where um, where a lot of the credit kind of starts to get wiped out and then and that's what I think that would give that more chance but, and that's when you start seeing kind of these um, asset bubbles starting to burst where things like houses that were costing 600 all of a sudden are worth a hundred thousand or even like mm-hmm. you know oil which was traditionally a hundred dollars a barrel I don't know if that's accurate it might be more like 60 I don't follow oil is now all of a sudden 20, mm-hmm. but basically every asset is all of a sudden significantly cheaper because mm-hmm. you realize that the reason it was priced the way it was, was because of the credit that was available. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. All yeah. right. And I, I mean, that's what we've seen. That's what we've seen through the last, you know, times that we've had this 2008 and, and just in March, you know? All right. So now you're going to make the case for gold, but not just the case yeah. for gold, um, you say that the place to be is in the gold mining stocks. I don't know if you have any specifically that you want to recommend yep. or fund that you're recommending, but I'll let you make the mm-hmm. uh, the case for that. Yeah. So the gold, most of the people that talk about gold, they talk about inflation, right? And that's part of it is they, they instinctively want to own gold and they remember the seventies and they really feel like, Hey, inflation would be great. And, you know, would validate my, my holding of this. Right. And so for me, there are sort of two very relevant saving sayings around gold. And one of them is that gold will buy a good men's suit. And that means that in Roman times, you could buy a toga and sandals and all of that. Um, and then if you got to 1920, um, you could buy a zoot suit or whatever. And today you can still buy a full, nice wardrobe, right? So it preserves its value over time. Um, on the other hand, there's one other thing. So that's, you know, gold can buy a good men's suit or gold will, you know, maintain its value irrespective of monetary inflation or currency inflation. The other thing is that gold is the only financial asset which is not someone else's liability, okay? And that goes back to the Exeter Pyramid, which I described, which I sent to you and I described, right? Where all of these liabilities are pyramided off of gold. And my reason for investing in gold today relates more to that second thing, right? I have a lot of respect for the first thing, you know, over long-term periods, um, that's why you should save in gold. Um, so that makes sense to you? Yeah, so far I'm with you. Yeah. And so 
the thing that you have to understand is that gold is not an investment, okay? Gold is savings, because we say gold is money, right? You know, in the Austro-Libertarian community, we say gold is money, but then some people seem to say, well, I'm investing in gold. I'm a professional investor. I take the words that I use very, very serious, right? Because if I use the wrong words, I might make, take the wrong actions, right? So I want to use the best words that I can to describe what I'm doing. I do not invest in gold. If you, quote, invest in gold, you'll probably end up being very sad because it's a really poor investment. It's an excellent form of savings, okay? And so gold bullion is... It's your base level of savings. It's the savings that you never hope to use, okay? So, um, you know, let's say you have $100,000, right? You don't want to, you know, you're going to want to keep a certain portion of that for a long time. You're going to want to keep it for 5 or 10 or 15, 20, 30 years, so that you know that if something bad happens, if something happens to you medically or something happens to your family, that you could come in and you could use those savings that you have. And if you save in dollars, it's going to depreciate over 30 years, right? So if instead you take about $100,000, you invest, or geez, there you go, you save uh, $20,000 of it into gold, um, you can then maintain that over your lifespan or, and, um, you will maintain the value of that. Now you take now, the rest, $80,000 and you go and you invest. I do have you a, put some in currency. Go ahead. I, I do have a technical question for you here, which yeah. is, okay. I don't know where I, what I would get on a current, you know, long-term bond from the U S government. Let's just say it's 2%. So let's say I don't have much of an appetite for risk and I'm looking to preserve my wealth. I would say I'm investing in a bond, so if over mm-hmm. the course of a 30-year period, the rate of return on gold in terms of putting my dollars into gold and then selling out of the gold is better than the rate of return on, you know, a secure mm-hmm. bond, I don't know, isn't that somewhat of an, to me, that's more yeah. of an investment than it is. I, I yeah. understand what you're saying that it, it, because there is no rate of return on gold and it's viewed as currency, you should view it as savings and not something that's going to create a return for you. Um, yep. But if... I, I get you saying. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess we're splitting hairs. It's more technical. And I have, than it has I have to be. A, uh, so here, here's you know the longer explanation on that is you can look, cert, certain aspects. I look at I look at things. There, there are basic functions that you have as a, someone who's building wealth. Right. You produce. You know, that's you producing podcasts and, and getting a, an income. You consume. Which I'm doing great at, by the way. I mean, the, the production yeah, value of this it's, thing. <laughs> 15 sandwiches a day. Yeah. Uh, so you consume, then you save the difference, and then once you get beyond saving, once you've saved, you can then invest, and you can speculate, okay? Right. So, and so certain assets you can only do certain things with, right? Uh, what if you tried to save your wealth in sandwiches? Not, not that great, right? Right. Um, so you can save in gold and you can speculate in gold. Okay. I don't recommend that the majority of people speculate in gold. Okay. I don't think they can invest in gold, 
that getting to what you're saying, yes, you can definitely enter in and have different strategies and you can kind of underweight gold and overweight gold and reference to different things. And you're sort of, you know, you're sort of saving with a speculative bent, right? With a speculative aspect to it. Now you can go on the COMEX exchange and you can literally buy futures in gold and things like that. And then you're just completely speculating right. or even in some sense buying an ETF in my mind is somewhat speculative because I believe people should have the base of their holding in a physical, you know, in their sort of immediate physical possession. And to to explain that, because if your gold ends up being really worthwhile, that means things really went to shit. And if you've gotten an ETF, you're not getting your hands on that. It's worthless. If things really go to shit to the point where gold is worth a fuck ton, you want that physical gold in your possession. And you want to hope that unlike they did in the past, they're not knocking the U S government isn't knocking down your door because they know you have it and they really need it. Mm-hmm. And part of the part of the, the you know where they confiscated the gold back in the '30s was that it was it was money, right? Um, so it, there was a kind of a different thing with that. But you want to generally hold you know physical bullion, coins, uh, bars in your general vicinity. You know if it's in storage in the town that you live in somewhere or something like that, that's fine. You know, you can you can look up on the internet different ways that you can store it, but you want to think about it. And it's important, like you know, you don't have to be like a crazy prepper or whatever it is. But the reason that you own gold is that so you have savings, um, so that you can use it in really bad events. So you need to think, what would that really what would that really bad event be, and can I get access to my gold? That doesn't mean that you don't have a brokerage account where you could also go in and you know over allocate a little bit more to gold if you saw it you know, if you saw some opportunity or to gold equities or whatever it is, but you better have your base in physical currency of gold and silver. And we can get into silver in a little bit because I think there's really a good opportunity there where you can make sort of speculative gains while Well, let's, uh, all right, I'm getting a little bit ADD here, but let's start with, let's start with that. If you're buying something tomorrow, it seems like for some reason, silver has not moved in the same way that gold has recently. And that if like if tomorrow you're making a decision, hey, I want to preserve a little bit of my wealth and I'm going to put, you know, yep. let's just say you got a thousand dollars. I'm going to put a thousand dollars and I want to put it into mm. physical metal. It would seem to me like silver is underpriced against gold. And that's probably the better play tomorrow. I'm not saying in a month from now or whatever, but would you say yep. like the, what's going on right now that silver seems to be underpriced against gold? Yep, absolutely. And I think that just for your for your listeners, um, you know, I, I, I'll skip to the end. I do recommend you know buying physical silver right now. But they can go and they can look up you know go search gold silver ratio and go look at a chart of that. You can look back at different times in your lifetime and see sort of these different peaks in it and things like that. And you'll sort of you can start to visualize it yourself, right? Where so this thing called the gold silver ratio is, you know, what has been described as sort of an ancient credit spread, right? A credit spread is the difference between a treasury bond and the bond to Coca-Cola, right? If you're going to loan money to the treasury, you're going to loan it for less than you loan to Coca-Cola. And then beyond Coca-Cola is, you know, Carnival Cruise Lines, right? And when you hit periods of credit stress, then that Carnival Cruise Line bond no longer trades at 10%. All of a sudden, it trades at 20%, and the Treasury still trades at the same or less, and, it, and the spread between them becomes huge. And in a sense, when you have a 2008-level sell-off or a sell-off like we had in March, silver sells off relative to gold, okay? It's just the way it works. You don't get angry at it. Don't whatever. That's the way it works. 
And silver is silver is the money of everyday commerce. Okay, gold is the money of of of, um, of capital transactions and of kings and governments. Okay, if you're transferring money between governments, you're transferring gold back in the day. If you're buying a major capital asset, that's done in gold. Silver is the money of buying a sandwich. And the back when we were on the gold standard, $20 approximately was an ounce of gold. Okay. So, you know, the, the $20 bill wasn't worth it, worth an ounce of gold. It was an ounce of gold. You could go turn it in for that. And a dollar, you know, you have a silver dollar because that's what it was. So the ratio was about 20 to one. If you had 20 silver dollars, you would have one ounce of gold. Uh, later on, you know, the SOB, FDR devalued gold to 35, so it's been at 35. It's been between 15 and 30s in the past. Now it's at around 100. It just this very day, it's just about right at 100. And that was considered like a panic level of uh, in the past. And I've watched gold silver ratio for years, and, and it, it barely hit 100 back in 2008, and it kind of came right down. Now, we had been for the last several years up in the 80s and the 90s, and then in March, it peaked all the way up to 125, and now it's back down around 100. So silver is at 17, and gold is at 1,700 plus. So it's right around there at 100. So, you know, you have a good opportunity still. Like a, a, a one-kilo bar of silver is 32 ounces. And if I think about if gold does what I think it's going to do, gold does really well, gold moves back towards in the direction of money, you know, that gold-silver ratio is going to move towards that $30, right? And so you can buy a kilo bar for about $700. So I, I, as I've told people, it's like, hey, how do you buy an ounce of gold today? Well, you buy, an ounce, you buy a kilo bar of silver for $700. Right? And, and, and then you, so, yeah, where do I buy mm-hmm. that link that you sent me? That's the best place to buy a kilo. Uh, you can buy. There's a, there's a lot of different online dealers. There's uh, Kitco is a really really well known one. There's Money Metals Exchange. Um, there's a there's a handful of different um, online retailers, um, and that's been pretty. You know, that's always. I'm getting a little ADD here, and that's because I'm out in a hot car. We're reaching the one-hour marker. Uh, so yeah. I'm going to hit you with two more questions. First one is, yeah. the last time gold went up this high, the stock market was way down. And it seemed to me, and now I'm not, I don't follow the stock market that regularly. I don't have a long career following the stock market. But it looked like the mm-hmm. two kind of trade inversely that as people were like, you know, as a flight to safety kind of move. You have at the moment, mm-hmm. the stock market has rebounded and gold is still climbing. Do you think mm-hmm. like it, it, that just to me strikes me as being like a little bit weird. What do you think mm-hmm. is going on there? Yeah, well, I agree with you that that is, uh, you know, that's a risk that you, you, you need to keep in your mind. But, you know, what we want, what I want to see as an investor in uh, saver and gold bullion and an investor in the gold mining shares is I want to see divergence. But just like you said, I want to see gold mining shares going up and I want to see stocks going down because someday I want to trade out of gold mining shares and into stocks or other financial assets, right? And so, yes, I think that, you know, look, I think this thing runs out until September or October and then I think you have really, really big problems to show up, 
I don't know that, I mean, I can't say that I'm going to be right, but I'm going to be watching and I'm going to be wary of that, right? And so at these different times, I mean, you see, you have seen gold get slammed pretty quickly at, during a liquidity crisis, right? So, you know, gold was, gold in March and, got and hit to explain by that, 150 bucks or something like that. Just to explain so, that, just, that's because just, people, yeah. they want to keep their money in gold because they see it as a safe asset, but they all of a sudden yeah. realize, fuck, I got to pay my taxes, I need some dollars, and they sell out. Exactly. And then it's, it's much more even, you know, immediate than that where they're on margin and they have, you know, they have different assets, they have stocks, they have different things and they need to just sell anything. And so they're just, they just start selling gold or whatever it is, especially since they had a gain in it, you know, so in March they had a pretty nice gain in it if they bought six months earlier or whatever. And so they would go and sell that. And I think that's why, that's where I get back to the importance of saving in gold, not investing in gold for the average rate or speculating in gold and you can't invest and not thinking that you're investing in gold. Okay. Because look, I, I, I bought gold all the way back at, when it was at 320. I didn't get it. I wish I would have got it at 250 at the bottom, but I got it back, you know, earlier and just after the dot com bus at 320. And look, I, I mean, it had gone up to 1700 or what it been to 1900. I, I barely even noticed it went down to 1100. I was just like, okay, whatever. I mean, I don't have, you know, those aren't my investments. That's just my long-term savings. So I don't worry about that, right? Um, now, if it's sitting there in your brokerage account with a little GLD symbol, you know, I guess you're getting nervous about it and doing things like that. Now, do you, think, just, do, you, uh-huh. do you think, do you think, I understand, like, it, what you're saying about gold being savings is not that different from what Warren Buffett would say about the S&P. You're buying it to hold it. Like, you don't, you're not going to pick bottoms. You're not going to pick tops. The point is, like, you're, yeah. hol- you're holding on to it. Do you even think that gold at its current level is still a buy? Because I always get weary when I see things at what would look like a peak or a top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do, because I think that you built a huge long base for gold. Um, I mean, it was up at 1900 and it spent, you know, five, six years kind of bouncing around or longer, really. I mean, it went all the way down to 1100. It built a really, really strong base, and it's been building these levels of basing all the way up. Um, and I think that it's ready to move, you know, I think it's ready to move into the 2000s and things like that. Now, um, you know, gold will, there's two ways that a central bank can increase the amount of gold they have. They can either add more actual physical gold or the price can go way up, you know? And so I think that, that I, 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 I do, you know, as much as I said, Hey, the Fed isn't, you know, doesn't do this and can't do that and all that the market might come in and revalue the Fed's gold way up and say, this is what, you know, this is what the dollar is going to be based upon, right? So if you, you know, if gold goes to 10000 you you kind of have a, a dollar back gold in some ways. Um, but I do think that, yeah, I think it's reasonable. I bought, you know, if I was going to buy more bullion, like I said, I would buy more silver today. And right. someday you could trade that for gold, right? That makes sense. Um, and then it, I don't know if we have time, but if people do want to invest, I, I, I recommend some of the gold mining shares because essentially uh, it's the way that the market is asking for more real money, right? I explain how our monetary system has been credit, tons and tons of credit, and, you know, the market wants real money, which is gold. And so what it's going to do is it's going to keep the price of gold firm. And the price of everything else is going to drop off. Okay, so oil is going to languish in the 20s and the 30s and things like that. 
and that can be way better for the gold miners because all of their inputs, all of those inputs are going to fall, and the copper mine is going to shut down, and they'll be able to take the drill rigs from that copper mine, and et cetera, et cetera, and that's going to spur the creation of real money. So that's where you can invest in the production of savings or the production of real money. All right, two questions. Two questions for yep. you in regards to um, um, gold mines. And by the way, when it comes to the gold mine investing strategy, your company put out um, like a, a 12 page like PDF thing with pictures. It's the yep. it's an easy, simple read and it lays out the strategy very clearly. I'll put it into the episode description so that people can check it out. Um, but right. my question for you on the gold mining stocks is why at the moment, or at least from the ones I looked at, and I, I looked at it for three minutes. It was like cramming for a test. I looked for it, edit for four minutes before I got on the phone with you. Um, yep. The charts I was looking at, it looks like those are about up like half. Like if I was looking at the spread of physical gold versus the gold mining stocks, the increase mm-hmm. in the, like the last couple of weeks since the markets rebounded is half of what you've seen in physical gold. So why don't those two mm-hmm. things yeah. kind of trade? Like I would think those two assets would trade more directionally. That is, the value mm-hmm. of gold is coming up. The value of my gold mine is coming up an equal amount. Mm-hmm. I mean, Newmont. You know, Newmont is the largest gold miner in the world. They've kind of doubled. They had gone more than a double, and they corrected back a little bit right now. So a lot of them have have, have gone up a ways. That's a criticism of. That is a criticism of the gold miners that some people make. Um, and it has been, again, something that was the case, say, back when, when, that, when, when that was really a big deal was back from, say, 2002 to 2011, right, where gold really went up a lot. And the gold miners didn't do all that well, and but that's because you were in this sort of inflationary environment where it was this sort of dual inflation, right? So gold was going up, but also the cost of everything was going to go was going way up, right? Right, and you're and saying so it's now, it's positioned differently because their operational costs are actually going to be cheaper, again, and so their profit margins are going to yeah. be higher. Yeah, I mean, I was just listening to a podcast that had Sean Boyd, the CEO of Agnico Eagle, which is a is a great miner that you know um, your people could buy. I think Newmont's a decent miner as well. Um, and you know, he was talking about the cost dropping and the difference between he was just stating my he's already seeing it. And he was just stating my investment thesis basically, which is you know, hey, what was the problem back in 2011? Well, our costs were just continually going up because oil went to 150. All right, so okay? t- two last questions for you here. First one mm-hmm. is I took one fine. Well, actually, no, I got a. I, I do have a degree in finance, and I failed a lot of those classes. But I remember the efficient yeah. market hypothesis. And so, yeah. why is it that you think that there's price discovery here, and the falling, you know, operational cost for mining isn't currently priced in? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of don't love the efficient market hypothesis. Okay. Right? Um, I mean, I I think that if you look at, you know, sort of an Austrian view of it, of an entrepreneur moving those prices towards an equilibrium through their actions, um, you know, it's, it's working towards efficiency, but, you know, we, we're the ones that have to go work it that way, right? And without people sort of having this idea and funding this idea, it's it's not going to do that. Um, and we, we haven't really seen it in the... Um, in the results yet, but I think by the end of the year and in the next year, COVID's kind of screwing it up a little bit. 
But you're going to start to see that in the results where you have a very firm to rising gold price and falling cost of, uh, of other aspects. Um, and then I think, I mean, look at the gold market. I mean, the, you know, go back, you, as you said, you looked at some charts. I mean, go look back at some of these gold bull markets, right? I mean, they're just speculative manias like crazy, right? And so at some point it will become more than just valued. It'll, you know, my view is it becomes massively overvalued. Okay, and then is there a gold, um, uh, a gold uh, mining index or? Yeah, there is. Yep. Is that so the move? So yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's fine. So there's people that own, uh, so you can buy the GDX. So that's an ETF that owns uh, the G, the GDX owns names like Newmont, Barrick, Agnico Eagle, Kinross Gold. Those are all reasonable stocks right there. I think that they'll do well. Um, and then there's the GDXJ, and the GDXJ is an ETF of the smaller ones. Now we invest in some of the we invest in, in, in stock that would be in the GDX. We invest in stock that would be in the GDXJ. We invest in some stuff that's even smaller than you know that doesn't even go into there. Um, you're doing your are, you're doing your homework and being more speculative. Yeah, yeah, different you know different things that are. Um, you know, de- exploration, development. There's royalty companies, a couple of royalty companies that are really good, or a wheat and precious, precious metals is very well regarded. There's another one called Osisco, which is, um, uh, has had some troubles, but I think it could be really good value. Um, and so those, all that profitability then, you know, shows up in the kind of the valuation of the, of the deposits that people have. One other real quick, Thing is, is, you know, actually, if you want to make a lot of money, a lot of times the highest in a commodity business, the highest cost operator can make the most money because, you know, if the gold price goes up or the costs go down, the, the difference is going to be bigger, right? If they're only making 10 million and all of a sudden they become making 100 million versus a guy who's making 100 million now goes to making 200 million, right? right so they can. Right. The, the evaluation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a, they, it, can, they can get a 10 bagger on their profit. So. Um, now that has risk to it. So. All right. I appreciate your time and uh, yeah. explaining all this stuff to us. Before I let you go, I don't know if there's investments that you're doing that people can get in on or if there's anything that you want to plug, but this is your chance to do so. Yeah. Uh, so it's my website is fairview-partners.com. You can poke around there. We're pretty much for accredited investors, so you have to show a certain level of net worth and things that oftentimes like a million plus dollars or whatever it is. You gotta be I rich. Wish it, you gotta, if you yeah, want to talk to this guy, you need some money. You know, it's another government scam sort of thing, right? I mean, that's not, it's, uh, not something I like, but it's what they make me do. So, right. um, but we bought, we have funds that focus on purchase of distressed debt. And then we have a fund that focuses on, uh, gold mining. So either of those, if, um, we'd be happy to, talk to people who are interested. Yeah, if you're out there, maybe if I pull my entire audience together in 10 years, we can make one question. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can start the, you know, the fire sandwich shop. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be good thing. Then you guys make enough. <laughs> Hell yeah. Dude, thank yeah. you so much. Uh, I'm going to have to yeah, go back better. and listen to this myself as there was a lot of uh, information. <laughs> And more yeah. t- more technical than our typical conversation, but I really yeah, appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, dude. Yeah, yeah, no, that was good, and I uh, hope hope it helps people out there. So.